to Detroit Today. I'm Sandra Swoboda sitting in for Stephen Henderson today. Thank you for tuning in to 101.9 FM or listening to the podcast of this program on iTunes or WDET.org. Well, last night I went out to report from the Gross Point Charlottesville Solidarity Vigil. It was hosted by the War Memorial and hundreds of people turned out on the east side there. Several community groups and churches were part of it, and one of those was welcoming everyone Gross Point. Uh, we want to start the show with some words from that group's presidents. This is Shannon Byrne from the stage last night. While it is heartwarming to join together as a community in solidarity with Charlottesville, with the African American and Jewish communities, and to stand together to denounce the horrific racism and violence Today is one small step. Horrific racism does not just show up in Virginia under the flags of white supremacy and neo-Nazism. It is with us each day, systematically built in the structures of our society, in our workplaces, in our conversations with friends and family, in our streets, in our schools, and indeed, in our own hearts. Current narrative tells us that racial division keeps us from having meaningful dialogue. That overall, we are a country divided. Well, tonight, we say that is not so. That was Shannon Byrne. She's with the group Welcoming Everyone Gross Point. And that was her on stage last night at the Gross Point War Memorial where hundreds of people turned out to talk about the issues. And we are going to do that this hour. We are devoting this full hour of Detroit Today to a discussion about all the news of the week. What is it all telling you about issues of race and equity and religion in our nation and in our community? What does it make you think about the role of our city, of Detroiters, of Metro Detroiters in the discussion? We spent time this summer looking back 50 years in Detroit and talked to one another about the impact that racial distrust still has on us today. And personally, I'm still trying to understand. I'm trying to better understand the legacy of the Confederacy and who gets to decide what that history is. Which stories deserve to be told? How do we present a variety of viewpoints about that, what that war continues to mean without glamorizing the group that fought for oppression and rebellion? And what is the fact that that war was over the enslavement of a group of people? Why does that fact keep getting lost? Most of all, I, I can't help but wonder if in some sort of twisted way this crisis is actually good for America. Is it better when the sheets come off and the faces lit by tiki torches make the rounds on social media? Accountability has come for some. Are we making progress when we debate whether, to, whether or to what extent hate speech is protected by our cherished First Amendment? Have you started having conversations with people of races and ethnicities who are different than you? And are you having more of those talks? And so before some of us end our work week commitments and get a bit of a breather this weekend, we at WDET wanted to have a conversation with you this hour. This show is a place for your observations and reactions to be shared. So 
Give us a call. You're part of this. Our number is 313-577-1019. And let's demonstrate what a civil conversation looks like in this community. Let's talk openly and honestly and respect each other. That number is 313-577-1019. I know some of you are ringing in already, and I appreciate that, and we are going to get to you. But first, we're going to start with a look from our nation's capital about what's happening there, what might be spreading here to the heartland. So I'd like to welcome to the program Tim Alberta. He's a writer with Politico. Tim, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. All right. You're in Washington. What is the conversation there this morning? Can you even unpack this for us of all the headlines that are coming out of uh, your dateline there? Sure. Well, I think the the conversation is uh, similar to what it has been for the past six, six and a half months, uh, which is a lot of folks in both parties and of all sort of ideological persuasions are just very uneasy about what they're seeing and hearing from this White House, uh, uncertain of what's going to come next, uncertain of uh, who, if anyone, the president is listening to, and what, if any, sort of strategic uh, uh, imperative is, is guiding uh, the, the actions and the words from the West Wing. It's, it's a very, I mean, everyone understood coming in that this was going to be an unconventional presidency. And I think some people welcome that more than others. But what we've seen, whether it be uh, just this this past week with the reaction to Charlottesville or with something as simple as the tweet yesterday referring to a debunked theory about shooting terrorists with bullets dipped in pig's blood. I mean, uh, the attacks on his attorney general several weeks ago, his son-in-law testifying under oath in front of the House Intelligence Committee, whatever it might be, it seems like every day is bringing something new and convention shattering. And I don't know that there is the bandwidth to sort of keep up with all of it in, in D.C. And so that, I think, is breeding in some part a lot of the media hysteria, for lack of a better word. Uh, and in a way, I think that almost helps the president and solidify the support with his base, because a lot of folks out in the country are not trying to keep up with every turn of the screw in Washington, and they see the media and the left going crazy over all of this stuff and think, you know, th- that this is part of the swamp, this is part of the resistance. So you basically have a, a uh, on both sides, sort of a, 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 uh, a bunkering down going on at this point, and, and it shows no let up. I think the president, more than anyone, ha- has sort of bunkered down and decided that he is going to be himself and the consequences be damned. So I, I feel like there's a little bit of a feeling uh, sometimes that people are not, um, they don't have faith in government. It, they feel like it doesn't really matter what our government does. Do you see that recognition there in the nation's capital? I think there's no question that for decades, and there's uh, plenty of public polling to, to illustrate this, that faith in public institutions has been on the decline. And obviously, you know, taking the FBI as an example with, with James Comey's uh, role in, in last fall's election and then his firing by the president this spring and all of the fallout uh, as an example of how I think the FBI became politicized and therefore became less trusted in a way that I think would have been unthinkable probably 10 or 15 years ago. Um, I do think what's been interesting to see up close out here is 
the lack of faith in the federal government from people in the federal government. I, I think that is new to me. Um, I, I think we have seen a deteriorating trust in our institutions, especially at the federal level, again, over the past several decades among folks out in the provinces. I think what's, what's been very interesting to see during this presidency is how folks in both parties out here, elected officials, activists, lobbyists, donors, people who have been part of the government machine, as it were, for a very long time, are suddenly looking around just sort of wringing their hands and wondering what, if anything, can be done to sort of right the ship. And that is not all entirely falling on the Trump administration. It's due to a whole a confluence of many factors. But uh, it is a very, I mean, I, I, I guess it's difficult to overstate or difficult to fully articulate for, for people outside of the Beltway just how dark things feel in D.C. right now. And, and it is uh, across party lines. It's across ideological divides. There is an awful lot of pessimism and doom and gloom here in D.C. right now. And it, and it feels just like a cloud sort of hovering over the city. So I want to go back to what you said about that uh, lack of support uh, within the government, lack of faith within the government, because I feel like in the last few months, some conversations I've had with with people out here who kind of cautioned um, against flying off the handle, against thinking this was too much of a crisis in the Trump presidency, was that the giant federal bureaucracy and people within it and the civil servants who have worked for decades and know the system and make the system happen, like kind of had the people's backs. And so it wouldn't matter as much what was coming out of the White House because that machine was what, you know, put enacted policy and dealt with people and programs. So what you're telling me is some of that is eroding, uh, that uh, can we get that back? I don't know. I well, I, look. I, I think you probably can. I, I would assume that some of this is cyclical. I mean, I, I know people who work in the Pentagon and at the Education Department, at the Transportation Department, who have been there under multiple administrations uh, of different parties, and and you would assume that many of them would be there beyond the Trump presidency, because as as your as you're illustrating, sure, this is a, a very big ship and it turns slowly, but I do think that. You know, there, there are certain elements of, of government and of bureaucracy that uh, take on, obviously, the, the character of the administration itself, of the, of the president himself and, and, uh, and his West Wing. And I, I think what's been remarkable, probably more than anything over the last six months, is to see not just how Republicans in Congress, Mitch McConnell or Paul Ryan or Republican senators, Republican congressmen, how they have reacted to the president and often to the president's attacks on them and to the president, in many cases, sort of triangulating against them and, and talking about Republicans as though they were a foreign entity and that he's a party unto himself. I think some of that was to be expected. It's a very uneasy relationship between this president and the rest of the Republican Party. I think what's been more interesting and more unprecedented in many ways is the degree to which uh, high-ranking officials inside this administration, inside this White House even, have consistently expressed dismay at the actions of the president, have sought distance from the president, uh, have, have leaked things to damage the president. Um, I think there's been this assumption almost over the, you know, again, over the last four or five months here, that these, these very damaging leaks 
that have come out in the press have been from the deep state, the so-called deep state, and, and uh, the implication being that these are all Obama holdovers uh, in some of the departments and agencies that, that are attempting to undermine this president's uh, legitimacy. I, just nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, the, the vast majority of really crippling leaks that have hurt this White House are coming from the West Wing. And, and I think that that can't be overstated, not just how important that is, but how unprecedented that is, that you have people who are actively undermining the president, either in, in promoting their own agendas or in attempting to sort of restore, in their view, some sanity to the way that things are being run uh, at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET 101.9 FM and WDET.org online. I'm Sandra Swoboda sitting in for Stephen Henderson today, and we've been talking with Tim Alberta from Politico magazine, taking a national perspective on what's happening in our nation's capital this week. Uh, We we asked for you callers at the top of the hour, and I want to go to Dora right now, uh, weighing in on this conversation. Dora, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and thank you for having me. You know, I think it's very important that we do talk about this. And one of the things, I mean, I come from the the viewpoint that you have people wrong um, fundamentally when you have personal attacks over the the exchange of ideas. Right now, a fundamental problem we have in our country, and this goes far, far beyond the last six and a half months, like your last caller referred to. Um, I do agree with one thing he said, that people are actively trying to undermine the president. I think that on both sides of the aisle, maybe out of fear, uh, maybe out of um, their own insecurity because they have not lived up to the promises and not delivered to the American people, they would rather engage in personal attacks versus exchanging ideas. You saw this way back when Obama was president. You saw Obama actually taking sides. Obama immediately would would interject himself in these local issues, such as Ferguson, such as, um, who was that kid that got shot in Florida? Uh, He immediately came to his defense and automatically vilified the police, automatically vilified authority, automatically taught People, our young, impressionable generation who saw this president for eight years, automatically you saw this, this division, uh, and it came out over and over and over again. So it's not just in the last six months. And what's happened today is not only are they trying to undermine the president, but what, what America is losing out on is its sense of we don't even know who to identify with. Even Republicans and Democrats themselves, what does that even mean these days? What does it mean? What does it mean to be American these days? Uh, you know, I, I turned on CNN today, and for a whole hour, rather than talk about the terrorist attack in Spain, a whole hour was devoted to how screwed up this president is and how screwed up his response is. Well, you know, why are we not talking about what, why are we not talking about the difference between tearing down that statue versus putting it up. All right, let Dora, Dora, let me ask Tim Alberta that question. He's there in Washington, D.C. He runs in those national media circles a little bit, more than we do. So, Tim, can you address some of Doris's uh, questions and concerns there? Well, I think that there is validity to the argument that the media has taken on sort of a tunnel vision approach to the president and to the news itself in that uh, 
you know, any given night if you turn on cable news, which I do not, and I feel like the country would be a heck of a lot better off if everybody else followed that lead because cable news is helping to sort of poison the, the national discourse, but that's a rant for another day. But point being that if you do turn on cable news uh, any given night, you are seeing basically wall-to-wall coverage of the president's latest tweet and the outrage that follows and, and discussing it from 20 different angles. And on the one hand, you know, you can understand why those programming choices are made, because, again, much of what the president is doing and saying is so far outside of the conventions of the American presidency that it warrants detailed, in-depth discussion. There's no question about it. But at a certain point, you know, are, are there diminishing returns? And, and would the American people be better off having nuanced discussions about you know, the, the history of Confederate statues and the pros and cons of taking them down and the implications moving forward rather than just discussing the president's comments about Confederate statues to the caller's point. So uh, I can certainly understand that argument. I think, again, the, the, the prevailing issue here that makes it difficult for the media, that makes it difficult for the American people, is that at any given time, on any given day, we are faced with something that this president is saying or doing that we have simply never seen ever before and will probably never see again. And, and, and so how do you distinguish uh, or, or how, how can you possibly try to allocate time to other subjects when you are watching history being made in real time seemingly almost every single day? It's, it's, a, it's, it's really an incredible phenomenon that I don't think we have wrapped our arms around yet, and we probably won't be able to wrap our arms around for many years. We'll probably depend on historians to contextualize all of this for us. Tim, that discussion that you describe is exactly what we're trying to do today on on Detroit Today here on WDET, and I hope we're succeeding. And so to further that discussion along a little bit more, I want to go back to the phones, and we have a lot of callers lined up here. So Mickey in West Bloomfield, welcome to WDET. Oh, thank you, Sandra. Uh, Thank you for this discussion. My concern is I see America rapidly approaching a moral choice that it's between justice, freedom, and equality, or white supremacy. And that may seem far-fetched, but when we consider white supremacy as being mainstreamed by the president and many in the GOP without the moral courage to go against their base, it's really not so far away. And the mainstreaming is being done in at least two ways. First, the lie I hear from so many that Americans who are advocating justice and equality are in some ways the same as the Americans advocating white supremacy. It should go without saying, no two concepts could be further apart. Yet the president has said there were very fine people on both sides. That is an absolutely surreal and staggering statement. The idea that there can be good Nazis or KKK members is literally sickening to anyone who knows the bigoted, murderous history of those two groups. And the second one that I, I thought about, your, your guest Tim, uh, your expert Tim, touched on, is the mainstreaming of the symbols of the Confederate states and Nazi regimes. There are too many people openly taking pride in and wanting to honor celebrate and display those symbols as heritage, as something to be proud of, 
and they have the support of the president and many in the GOP. This isn't being repudiated and condemned uh, for the slavery and genocide that and other crimes against humanity committed by those regimes. Quite simply, there are not two equal sides. One side is against bigotry, hate, and injustice, and the other side is advocating bigotry, hate, and injustice. And, it, and this discussion is, is perfectly timed because it astonishes me how many people I know to be educated, sophisticated, and smart are somehow blinded when it comes to making this choice and are throwing in with the white supremacists because of party affiliation and having voted for Trump. And I see us as Americans, we must make a moral choice, not a political choice. All right, Mickey, thank you so much for that call and those comments and those observations and for sharing them with our audience here. Tim Alberta, you're with Politico in Washington, D.C. there. What about what Mickey said about there not being two equal sides in this? Well, certainly I think the, the most controversial, most polarizing aspect of the president's remarkable, un, really unbelievable press conference earlier in the week was when he did seem to equivocate on 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 what had happened in Charlottesville and and said you know that that uh, you know that there were neo Nazis and KKK guys who were bad, but that there were plenty of people protesting the removal of the statue who who were not bad, and that there were very fine people on both sides, and and saying that there were troublemakers on both sides, and that there were also very fine people on both sides. And I think the president sort of got himself all twisted up, and, and this is not surprising for anybody who has watched him, because this is the president, by his own admission and by the admission of people around him who, who want to promote and advance his agenda, he is not the most articulate guy, and he often finds himself uh, sort of stumbling over his own phraseology, and it, and, pro- and it produces some really cringeworthy moments, and this was obviously one of them. I think there is a it is very defensible to say that there were troublemakers in Charlottesville on both sides. Uh, we, we've seen now video footage of some of the counter-protesters uh, assaulting media members. I mean, there's no question that some of the folks, not a majority it seems, but some of the folks who showed up on the other side in Charlottesville were anarchists, people who were looking for trouble. We get it. But so that, that, that part of it was completely defensible for the president to say. I think everyone acknowledges that, or most people would acknowledge that at this point. I think where he got himself into trouble, obviously, was taking it a step further and saying there were very fine people on both sides. There were, there were an awful lot of reporters there covering it live on the scene, and they did not see anybody who was not affiliated with white supremacist groups, neo-Nazi groups, KKK groups. They did not see really anybody who was who was not part of that unite the right movement who was there just being peaceful and demonstrating the removal of a historical statue and so for the president to say that right after he got done with a with sort of a rambling um, uh, soliloquy on the idea that he needs, you know, he's not going to make an assertion before he has the facts, which of course runs counter to everything we've seen during his presidency thus far. I think that's what got everyone's dander up, and, and justifiably so. And that specific statement really, I think, is what has sparked so much of the outrage, not just that you have seen sort of predictably from the left and from certain quarters of the media, but from within the Republican Party just a few minutes ago. Uh, I'm not sure if listeners have had the chance to see this, but just a few minutes ago, Mitt Romney, the 2012 Republican nominee, issued a lengthy 
rather extraordinary statement calling on President Trump to apologize and withdraw his statement. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we saw Presidents George H.W. and George W. Bush issue a joint statement the other day, basically condemning what President Trump had said. We've seen John McCain, we've seen Marco Rubio, uh, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, countless other Republicans over the last 48 hours come out forcefully denouncing what the president had said. And again, this is what I, you know, just going back to what I had said earlier about how unprecedented all of this feels. To have any president rebuked by a sitting member of their party is really something that we don't see very often, and it's, and it's pretty incredible. To see this, this widespread and this forceful of a rebuke, and really a denunciation, as I said a moment ago, we just don't really have much historical precedent for it. And, and I think, uh, you know, far from this prompting President Trump to carefully reconsider and to maybe go back and, and clarify his remarks, it seems to be driving him further into a bunker, and, 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 it, and it seems to be provoking him to adopt a me-against-the-world mentality, which is what we saw during the campaign and what we've seen at other points during the first six and a half months of his presidency. And whenever that has happened, it does not seem to end well for his relations with the party and really with, with much of the country. All right, Tim Alberta, we are going to let you get back to chronicling all of that, your work at Politico Magazine looking at uh, the politics of the White House fracturing between the political parties, change in America. Thank you so much for joining us on Detroit Today. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Stay with us on the phones. We are going to continue our conversation, and we want to hear from you. What do you make of the events of the past week? I'm Sandra Sabota. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. News, music, culture, and community. Every day. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. Detroit's public radio station. Thanks for joining us on WDET. This is Detroit Today, and I'm Sandra Swoboda, sitting in for host Stephen Henderson. Thanks for tuning in as we're having an hour-long discussion about news of this week and what it's telling all of us about issues of equity, race, and religion in our nation. Um, I want to welcome to the program Kari Brown. He's a professor of sociology here at Wayne State University. Kari, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello. So uh, we've spent the first part of the hour talking about kind of the view in Washington, D.C. Um, how are you viewing what's going on in this country from your perspective here in Detroit? Okay, well, thanks for having me on. Um, well, one point that I'd like to make is that, from my, from my view, in my perspective, I think that Trump's views about neo-Nazis and the KKK could be seen as part of an ongoing strategy by Trump to divert attention away from the growing angst that a lot of Americans feel about um, increasing social inequality in this country, um, and particularly among working-class Americans, working-class white Americans. That's pretty much been the focus of his campaign. Um, now, I don't want to bore people with stats, but that's, that is kind of what I do. I'm a sociologist, so I just have one that I'd like to share. Um, in the national poll in 1997, about 80% of Americans said that there's plenty of opportunities in this country to get ahead. By 2012, it was only about half of Americans that agreed to that view. So one response was articulated by Bernie Sanders, and he pointed the finger at the changing nature of the economy in which automation and trade deals benefited, that benefited corporations increasingly left those with less skills and education behind. 
Um, Trump, Trump, he also pointed to this idea that the changing nature of the economy is hurting some Americans more than others. But he also spent quite a bit of time blaming Mexicans, terrorists, those that resist police brutality against blacks, as being partly responsible to the angst exhibited by working-class men and women. Um, but the difference, I think, though, between Trump and traditional Republicans, but I would say traditional Republicans, is that Trump hasn't used the uh, traditional racial code words. He's been fairly blatant with it. And I think that is kind of emboldening the response that you've among working-class Americans, some of which was exhibited in Charlottesville. So are you in some way saying Bernie Sanders and his campaign and his support across the country was almost like a predictor of the Trump presidency? How are those how are those candidates and those movements related? Well, what I'm saying is that there's two responses. One response to growing angst is to scapegoat. That's what I see Trump is doing. Scapegoating undocumented immigrants, scapegoating those on the left. And another response is to look at economic conditions in this country and try to figure out what can be done to try to raise the votes of those that have been left behind. And so that's the difference that I see. And I think what Trump is doing is he's emboldening groups that aren't very clear in terms of why they haven't benefited as much as they think they should have. And his response is, well, it's the other. It's the other that's out to get you. Creating that culture of fear. Uh, Okay, Professor Brown, I'm going to have you hold on for just a moment. I want to go back to the phones because we have people from our community stacked up here. Annette in West Bloomfield, welcome to Detroit today. Annette. Annette, are you with us? Okay, so Professor Brown. I'm still here. Oh, okay. Annette, go ahead. Hi. um, Sorry, good morning. I apologize. I work midnight shift. And I am happy to talk to you. I am a child of a Holocaust survivor, and he taught me not to hate. I have passed that on to my children, and I don't understand in this day and age why it's still there, why anyone would need to teach or exist in hatred in a society that should go forward instead of backwards. Professor Brown, you have a bit of a background in uh, social work as well. Can you address that dynamic of hate in our communities and in our families? God, I, didn't, I didn't hear that question. Can you repeat it, please? Uh, yeah, she's wondering about uh, why why children and why children are taught to hate. How children are taught to hate. She's the daughter of a Holocaust survivor and and was really taught specifically and diligently not to have such emotions, even uh, though her father was a Holocaust survivor. Right. Right. Well, I mean, I think in, in some sense that all people, we are tribal, and that we do try, we do tend to claim to groups um, that share our own experiences. But I think what happens is that political leaders, um, very charismatic political leaders, can manipulate these feelings for their own political ends. And so you can divert people's attentions away from what's really a So that manipulation and political communication, I mean, it's people, we, we, we on the journalism side of things see and experience that every day where politicians are trained to right. speak. They have their, their talking points and they have studies and research and, exactly. and communi- yeah, communication firms paid right. big bucks to bring us political commercials. Do we stand exactly. a chance? I mean, that's, that's difficult. Um, I mean, you, you, do see, you do see groups that are challenging um, big money in politics. I mean, what you, let me just back up. What you see 
is that there's a great amount of influence among those with a lot of resources, corporations that pay a lot of money for lobbyists to get their agenda put forth, and to try to spin a story in a way that makes makes their agenda seem beneficial to them and to um, other Americans. Uh, you do see groups in the left. I mean, at that Charlotte, uh, Charlottesville event, there were a number of progressive religious organizations that were they hate, they hate speech and they hate rhetoric. And they're also protesting policies that contribute to economic injustices that make people susceptible to scapegoating um, rhetoric. Um, so you do see resistance. They're just facing an uphill battle uh, because of the amount of resources involved in trying to shape the narrative on TV and internet forms by groups that have more money. All right. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. We're 101.9 FM, WDET.org online. I want to thank everybody who's joined the conversation so far as we talk about the news of the week and the issues that are represented. Uh, I want to go back to some of you, Sam in Mount Clemens. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for having me. Um, I really, I'll, I'll try to wrap this up. I have a quick story. Um, I'll kind of get away from the, the politics here. Um, anyways, I'm 37 years old. Um, my grandfather bought the boat from Italy, lived in Detroit during the riots. Then he later moved to the suburbs. Um, growing up, my grandfather uh, was completely racist. He threw the N-word around the house like you wouldn't believe. And it was a hard time for me because I had a lot of black friends, and which I'm obviously white. Um, anyways, years down the road, he's been dead for 25 years. He ended up in the hospital. He was on his deathbed with cancer. And there was a black man next to him who was also from Detroit, around the same age. And they were bickering from the beginning, talking about the riots. They almost changed his room. And I'll never forget, two days before my grandfather died, I went to visit him. And he pulled me aside. And I couldn't believe the curtain between the two were open. And he goes, I want to introduce you to my best friend. And I was just astonished. And he goes, son, he goes, I was completely wrong. Everything I've, I've said, I've told you, this is the best man I've ever met. I'm sorry to get a little choked up about it. This is my best friend. And he said, break the cycle. And those are the last words that my grandfather told me. And it was just unbelievable. And then the gentleman next to him died a day after. And to see the two sides you know, my grandfather thinking, oh, here, the black people are doing this, and, you know, and then he understood why the, the riots happened. And it, it's it's up to us. I have a four-year-old daughter with uh, her best friend is four also. He's a black little boy. And it is so, they're so innocent. They haven't been tainted. And we don't preach hate at all. Everybody's equal in our household. So I think it comes down to parenting and get rid of this old mentality of, this, this hatred, and it's just, it's so asinine and primitive to me. Um, and like I said, I'll let the story speak for itself. And thank you for having me. Sam, thank you for that. You're not the only one getting a little choked up with that yeah, story, I will say. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, so I'm going to go back to the phones <laughs> uh, for this moment. Anthony in Centerline, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, thank you for taking my call. My comment is a response to the woman that called earlier talking about how Obama took the side of Trayvon Martin and the other people that were killed by the police. You know, when I, when people say that, you know, you have unarmed American citizens killed by the police, and people are okay with that. 
And they're okay with that because the people that are being killed by the police, they don't see them the same way as they see themselves. You cannot, in good conscience, be okay that the police kill unarmed people, especially children. You know, a 12-year-old boy in a, playing with a toy gun in a state where it's legally permissible to carry real guns got killed. And people are okay with that. Well, I, I don't know that everyone's okay with that, uh, Sam. We hear from Anthony. We hear yeah. from a lot of callers on that. I want to go to Professor Brown for a response. Yeah, I'd like to respond both to the last the last two callers. I mean, the the first caller from West Bloomfield with the uh, Italian American. I mean, that's a case study of exactly what the research suggests. The research indicates that when you have people of different racial groups that become friend, friends with one another, that you see a lot less racial prejudice among these groups, among blacks, whites, and Hispanics. The problem in our country is that even though we've made a lot of progress in terms of increasing racial integration in neighborhoods and schools, there's still a, a high amount of racial segregation in this region. And Detroit is the number one metropolitan area for racial segregation. So it makes it difficult for us to to challenge the view, to challenge the ideas that we see on TV with our own personal experiences. If you don't know any black people, if you don't know any Hispanic people, you don't know any white people. So if you're watching, and the other thing that happens as well is that Americans are very segmented in terms of the TV shows, the TV where they get their news. The people are getting it from either CNN and NBC or Fox News, and so blacks, whites, Hispanics are rarely coming into contact with one another to become friends. And then we're relying upon news that provide a very uh, jaundiced view of, of reality. And so it becomes very difficult for people to even empathize when you hear that someone gets hear that someone got killed if you don't know anyone like that. You don't know their experiences. And on top of that, you're watching television programs that suggest that perhaps the person was not completely innocent. So that's a big challenge. But I think the way forward is, is that we do have to talk about ways that we can have shared space, neighborhoods and schools with people of different races. I think groups that we can share our experiences. All right, Professor Brown, I want to push pause on our conversation here for just a moment. I want to ask the callers, is there a time when you've had a conversation with a person of another race or ethnicity about these kinds of issues? You can call us at 313-577-1019. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET. We'll be right back with continuing this conversation. You're listening to Detroit Today on WDET 101.9 FM and WDET.org online. I'm Sandra Swoboda sitting in for your regular host, Stephen Henderson, today for what is really an important discussion about the news of the week, the issues of race, equity, religion even in our nation and in our community, and really kind of getting to what the role of our, our community is in this discussion. And it's happening on our phone lines. It's 313 577 1019. I want to go back to the phones. Uh, Regina in Detroit has been on hold for a while. Regina, welcome to Detroit Today. 
Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. I'd just like to comment that I hope we focus our attention not just on the fact that white supremacists rallied carrying tiki torches, but that as a recent social media post that we've seen making the round shared, they'll go back to their job in HR and decide who gets hired and who gets fired. They'll sit on a jury and decide the fate of a young person of color. When I read that, I thought what I'm even more concerned about is the white supremacists who aren't raising their hands and saying, I'm a racist, are even a great or societal threat because their bigotry is masked under a protective cloak of racial privilege. And to respond to your question, Sandy, around having conversations with diverse groups, I've been involved with a group of diverse Detroit women where we've convened dialogues on race and invited people to the table with different viewpoints. And not surprisingly, no one has been willing to raise their hand and say, I have this bias or prejudice and this is why that could help stimulate a conversation. So we really have to push harder and identify ways to make progress, but I know one thing I can do as a Detroiter is to use the term white supremacy over and over, even if our president won't, and in particular as a white Christian woman to use my privilege to make it my obligation to call out racism, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, not just in times of national attention, but in times where the far more subtle nuances in our community of racial privilege are present, because choosing to make myself uncomfortable every day in times unlike this, when there isn't a national public outcry as a privilege my brothers and sisters of color and other religions don't have. Regina, thank you so much for that. Uh, Professor Brown, I want to kind of help help Regina do more and help other people do more. What, what guidelines or advice can you offer for convening these conversations? They're hard. Well, I mean, they're they're difficult. I mean, and one of the difficulties is that, I mean, we all believe that we're good people, and we try to be good, we try to be good people. And we also, I myself, I myself believe that everything that we've accomplished in life is because of our own doing, not because of, of our race. Professor Brown, you still there? Oh, man, you can hear me? Hello? Oh, there you go. Go ahead. <laughs> Our point is that we know that we're good people, and we all believe that the things that we've accomplished in life are a result of our own doing, not a result of our race or the family in which we were, we were born into or the community in which we were born into. And so we're, when we're challenged with this idea that, well, no, you actually have privilege, and that there are things that need to be done if you want you to have a more diverse and equitable society to improve the well-being of others. That's tough, because a lot of people think and that, well, you're blaming me for it. And so the tough part is... is is being open to, to criticism and being willing to change. I mean, if, if that's people's goals. But with the last call I mentioned, that's incredible what she's doing. Um, there are groups out there. There are church groups out there. There are nonprofit groups that are out there that are working towards this end. Um, but a lot of people just don't know about them. All right. Hopefully through shows like this, and we'll we'll put All some right. links on our Facebook or on our uh, on our Facebook page and on our web page to some of the right. activities and conversations that are going on. I mentioned at the top of the show the event in Gross Point last night at the War Memorial. Um, we'll exactly. put a link to that up where people can find where they can engage in these conversations. Um, but let's let's host a little bit more on the program today. I'll go back to the phones. Kyle in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit today. Hi. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, I am kind of have a question about, you know, I feel like we're kind of in the wild, wild west of the information age still. And, uh, you know, all through the debates, all through the election, there just was this constant thought of like, well, my data says this, my data says that, your data says something different. You know, there's not even an agreed upon set of data to debate. 
And so it, I feel like what tends to happen is like you just go back to political dogma or in the Trump campaign, how you feel. We feel marginalized. We feel like whatever that, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is sort of just like the extremity of that. If, um, you know, this is just sort of taken to the extreme and Trump is the Frankenstein monster of like, there's no data to really agree on and really debate critically. Right, because it is all very personal and we all have feelings and we all have our own anecdotes and our own personal experiences and observations and conversations in our families and on our social media. Professor Brown, I'm going to let you respond to that. You you mentioned earlier you're into the quantitative side of research and your sociology work. How does this happen on these issues? Well, I mean, Paul is right. I mean, we can use that we can. We do use data to support um, our end. Um, that happens a lot. I think he's right. I think Trump is perhaps the extreme. I haven't seen people just completely, I haven't seen presidents just ignore it. But uh, let me say this, though. I think there, there is a role that universities can play in this regard in trying to bring a little bit more objectivity to this debate. Uh, I know that Michigan State was considering allowing Richard Spencer's organization to, uh, to meet at the university. I think they denied his request. But I think an opportunity could be to allow groups with different ideological perspectives, people on the far right, people that are traditional conservatives, moderates, liberals, progressives, to debate and to allow one another to present an argument while others are poking holes in your argument so that you have to defend it with a moderator, maybe like yourself, that's pushing uh, the representatives of these organizations to make their case and then allow uh, people in the audience, people that are listening, people that are watching, uh, to figure out what makes the most sense for them. Um, but I think it ha- has to happen at the same time. Um, and these groups have to be forced to make their case. I think that doesn't happen, happen often enough. Okay. Uh, I want to go back to the phones. We have Lee in Detroit. We're running out of time here, so I'm uh, a few minutes left in the program, so I want to get mm-hmm. to you, Lee. Go ahead. Hi, I'll make this real fast. Um, look, I'm 30 years old. I stay in Detroit. Uh, but I work out in Taylor, Michigan, and I happen to work with uh, quite a few whites, and I find that we all get along. It's the fact that we all respect one another. I think it's a problem of learned behavior. A person grows up in a racist family, you know, eventually they get older and be racist, but we all had that choice. You know, we get to that age in life where we can determine what's wrong or what's right. And I think a person, you know, just needs to just choose what's best for himself. I mean, what's best not just for himself, but what's best for his community, for his family. Yeah, for community, and that's what we're talking about today. Thank you so much, Lee. Um, I'm going to go back to the phones again. Uh, Greg Bowens is holding. Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Sandra. This is Greg Bowens. How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. I know we only got a couple of minutes left, and, you know, as uh, your colleagues may not know, I'm the president of the Gross Point Harper Woods NAACP branch. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that uh, that I, that we found from working in the Gross Points, living in the Gross Points, and being a part of this branch is is that for some people, many people, the first time that they have an intimate exposure mm-hmm. with folks from a different background, different mm-hmm. race, is when they join the uh, mm-hmm. the Gross Point Harper Woods NAACP branch. And it's interesting because we had Nikki Pardo, who does a lot of diversity training, uh, come to one of our meetings. Uh, recently, and uh, one of the things that we had to get down to very quickly was the definition of what is what is prejudice, 
what is bigotry and what is racism and how to identify that. And it's interesting because you find people who consider themselves to be, whether they're black or white or Chaldean or Indian, we have all those folks uh, in our branch, um, begin to ask themselves that question and reacquaint themselves with the definition of, you know, of what is prejudice, what is bigotry, and what is racism. And then they could begin to learn to operate, you know, from those definitions and not go from, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, it's very helpful. Can you, Greg, can you give us a short them. definition of each of those? How are they different? Well, I mean, I, I suppose like a, a quick way to sort of like do it is like this. You might recall not too long ago in Detroit, there was a, um, the cops had arrested somebody for terrorism charges after buying guns and grenades from and from the feds. And it turned out that uh, that this person was white and male and certain. Now, when you first saw that story on TV, you may have thought that the person, you know, he lived in Dearborn. So you may have thought he was Arabic, Muslim, and that, you know, fit the description of what we had been told about, you know, terrorism, right? Turns out the kid was from uh, Ann Arbor, and went to Ann Arbor High. And so prejudice is seeing that, hearing that story, and immediately thinking Arab immigrant terrorist. Um, Bigotry comes into play when you find out that that person doesn't fit that stereotype that you may have had in your head inadvertently, and you still apply the idea that all terrorists are Muslim, even though you know that's not true. So your bigotry is in the play. Racism is at the heart of, you know, all of that, but you kick it up at a higher level when you see somebody who is Muslim and you know that not all Muslims are terrorists because you've been exposed and you have the facts. But uh, when you encounter one and you have the ability to hire somebody or make some kind of uh, call that can impact, you know, their livelihood or what they can do or their freedom, you revert back to your prejudice and your bigotry and you deny them that opportunity. You have the power to impose your, your, your prejudice and bigoted views. And that's when racism comes in. That's what racism is. So that's the way we try, try to explain it in a rough sort of like, you know, outline. Greg, thank you so much for that. Uh, Professor Brown, in the less than a minute we have left, I'd like you to respond to Greg and leave us with some some messages of lessons learned and where we're going and how we can all make a difference in our community. Sure. I mean, the example that Greg provided and the call before provided um, exemplifies what's possible. I mean, if the, if we, as Americans, as Detroiters, have opportunities to interact with one another, then we can learn from one another, and we can challenge some of these stereotypes that we have may, may have led and led to believe um, by television um, and other sources. Um, so these types of groups, the NAACP and Gross Point, the groups like the Interfaith Council of Peace and Justice, that's their aim, to get people to recognize that we are all human beings and we all have similar needs and interests. Um, the challenge is to getting people to actually to attend these types of organizations, become active in these type, types of organizations, and ask themselves honest questions. Um, But I think it's possible. 
All right. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to thank all the listeners, especially for joining the conversation today, and our guests, Kari Brown, a professor of sociology at Wayne State University, Tim Alberta, reporter at Politico. The show is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer, and I want to thank them for all their work this week. Program director is Joan Isabella, and our technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET Sam Bobian, and you all can continue this conversation on our Facebook page throughout the day and on Twitter using the hashtag Detroit Today. I'm Sandra Svoboda, and you've been listening to WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University.